Lord Jesus, may we be conscious of our need for you even when we don't feel it. May we know it. And so direct us and guide us and help us, we pray. Spirit of God, Spirit of God, work in a great and a powerful way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 20, 28. I've entitled my message, You Can't Make It Happen or Two Mama's Boys. And you'll see the relevance of that as we walk through, through the passage. You can't make it happen or two mama's boys. We pick it up in verse 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Let me read that line again. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. I'm going to do something in the introduction of the message that I typically don't do, but I want to give some takeaways at the very beginning of the message, and I want to walk through four observations in the text, and then I'm going to give some more applications at the end. The very first thing I would say is this. As you read this encounter... You read this narrative, you're, you're, you're gripped with the realization that God's kingdom is not one big career fair. We, we have to think differently about the kingdom. We've got to think differently about Christianity, and we have to think differently about God's church. God's church is not one big way of us taking our gifts, our talents, our ability, and shopping our way all the way up to the top box. That's not how the kingdom works. And James and John's mom had it wrong. This is not a career fair. This is not, this is not, this is not your career path. That's not how the kingdom, kingdom works. The sense also here is that we need to release to God our future and the control of our lives. That's the sense as you read this. She wanted to orchestrate things to make this happen and to, to position stuff. No, the sense of all of this is this. We've we got to release to God our future. 
We've got to release to him our future. And we've got to release to God our con- control of our lives. That's what it's all about. Jeff said, and, and as he was describing prayer, the whole lesson of surrender. That's what we have to do. And I find it, I find that in so many of us, and it's my temptation as well, we, we come along and we want to use God to help us to get to where we need to be. And as we see in this narrative and what Jesus has to say in response, oh, oh. <laughs> no, that ain't how it works. You don't use me for nothing. You got to release to him. The other observation I, I would make here is that where we will be tomorrow depends on how well we do today. There's a sense, although it's not said there, that they lost sight of the moment. Where you're going to be tomorrow has to do with how well you do right now, today, in this moment. And I would say more negatively, don't blame others for where you are. Who we are and what we do should take us to where we should be. You take competition off the table. You don't blame people for where you are. Uh, grown folks don't do that grown folks don't blame their mamas grown folks don't blame their siblings grown folks don't blame circumstances you don't blame people Jesus said you don't blame anybody for where you are you take responsibility who you are and how you respond to God will determine where you will be planning and vision means nothing if we don't execute today Right now, we're servants. Today. You, you have the greatest dreams in the world. You, you can have great, 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 great plans. Your dreams, my dreams, plans, and all of that means nothing apart from execution. I, I've met plenty of dudes, 60, some even 70 years old, who are still talking about what they intend to do. It's the same song that they sang when they were 25 and 30 and 40 years old. They've been intending. And so as you read this, you get this sense of urgency, although it's not stated here. That's all about execution, Jack. Don't, don't, don't shop your resume. Don't, don't tell me what your path is. Don't recruit others to be your surrogate obedience. No, it's about execution about where you are. In other words, God determines outcome and we decide if we're going to submit and be obedient. That's the sense of this whole thing. Uh, We'll get into this in a moment, but God determines outcome. He determines outcome. And stop trying to determine your own outcomes. Um, our, 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 Our decision point and commitment point has to do with submission and obedience. Or if I would put it away, another way, be careful of enlisting others, and we're going to see this in a moment. Be careful of enlisting others to do what only God can do in and through you. Uh, I, I want you to think about what I just said there. Because that's a biggie. Be careful of enlisting others to do what only God can do in and through you. In other words, we cannot recruit obedience. You can't recruit obedience. You can't give it to somebody to obey for you. You can't rent it. You can't consult it. 
You can't, you, 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 you just can't recruit obedience. Let me give you an illustration. There's a friend of mine, I, I hate to say it's negative, but this is a negative illustration, but there's this friend of mine who's my age, of, in fact, he's several years older. I've known him for years, known him for more than 40 years. He is one bitter dude. He's bitter. And you know why he's bitter? Um, he, he, his gifts, he has abilities and this kind of thing. He's bitter because he has a weakness when it comes to jealousy and comparison. His whole life, and if you listen to him today, he says that he has not experienced the potential in his life because other people didn't help him to get there. That's the song that he sings. And by the way, by the way, that's a familiar song. That ain't just him. There's a lot of folks in sight like that who are just blaming, and, and, and then the whole deal is this. No, 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 this, this is, you know, you were trying to borrow other people's obedience. You, you look at them and say, you could have helped me. Crawford, how come you didn't do this for me? Or George, how come you didn't do this for me? Or Bill, how come you didn't do this for me? You could have opened those doors for me. You could have this Nobody can obey God for you. How come you didn't work? And so as you read this text, you find Jesus putting all of this servanthood stuff and cup language back on James and John. So, whoa, get your mama out your business. <laughs> so having said that, I just want to say for the sake of time, as we live for Christ and serve him, be aware of these four things that just really jump right out of this narrative. The very first one is this. Be aware of jockeying for position. That's the spirit of competition. Look closely again at verse 21. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to, up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, there ought to be some things that disturb you about this. This is awkward. There's a little weird stuff going on in here. Now, the sons of Zebedee, these boys, we ain't talking about nine and ten-year-old boys, you know, where mama goes to the little league coach and said they need more playing time. We ain't, we ain't talking about nine and ten-year-old boys. This is, this is weird and awkward. These are grown men. These are grown men. And the text says that she comes to Jesus with her two boys. Isn't that little, doesn't that strike you awkward? Some of you are looking at me and you're making me nervous because you're saying, no, that's not strange at all. I did that last week. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you you know, Sister Zebbie and Johnny and Jimmy are coming up there to Jesus. I mean, you, you got to understand, it's just like Jesus chose these men. Chose these men. Now, I happen to believe that maybe Mama, Mama Zebedee, she, was, uh, she had heard Jesus say that his disciples would be seated on thrones back in chapter 19, verse 28. She said, you know, I have some good boys. They're just as gifted as the rest of them. They're just as smart and good. In fact, they're better looking than Peter and Mark. And, and you know, they, they've got skills and they've got abilities and this kind of thing. And I, they, just need a, they just need a little opening, a little help. They deserve that. Uh, let me just quickly say this, and I don't mean this humorously. 
Uh, this would be funny if it wasn't a pattern today. It's not so funny. It's not so funny. Uh, Mama, stay out of your grown children's business. Stay out of your grown children's business. I said to dads too. Stay out of your grown children's business. It's not cute. It's not funny. You're emasculating them. And this is the bizarre thing, and I think in the providence of God, he put this in the text to let us see how awkward and weird this is. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that at all. Well, the second thing we need to be made aware of is that, you know, no, number, no, number one, don't, don't go jockeying for position, but number two, uh, we, we need to see in here that Jesus basically is warning them about ignoring the process. Don't ignore the process. It's interesting to me how Jesus answers all of this. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink? Now, the two yous go to two different audiences. This is where, this is where I think, actually, actually, I don't want to completely blame, blame Mrs. Zebedee on this one. I think that there was some sick codependency going on here. I actually think, I actually think that James and John kind of sort of liked the fact that their mama was stepping into this. The you, the first you, pronoun you, you do not know what you're asking is plural. Meaning Jesus was addressing mama and the, and the, and the two boys, y'all, in other words. Y'all, I mean, that's good. Y'all, y'all don't know what you're asking for. You have categorically no idea what you're asking for. You're just going to run it up here with these knucklehead grown boys in tow, and you're kind of like campaigning for a position. Seriously? You, you have absolutely no idea. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus, from that moment on, ignores mama. He doesn't engage her. He doesn't ask her opinions. He doesn't ask them, well, what's their favorite colors or what kind of food they like to eat. He doesn't ask any of that. He ignores her. And he turns, a second you is directed to James and John. And he says to them, don't skip over this, fellas. You got this throne thing in your head. You got this prominence thing in your head. You got this sitting next to me in your head. You went home and told your mom about all of that stuff. She's coming here thinking about grandeur and glory and platform and position and all of this stuff. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me ask you a question. Don't violate the process. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink. You, you've jumped past things. No, you, 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 you're, you're jumping past some things, fellas. If you're going to be associated with me, then there, there, there's some painful, hard 
incredible things that you're going to have to go through. Your relationship with me is not always going to be comfortable. And the cup that he's referring to here is a cup that he outlines in his prayer in Matthew chapter 26. When he says, Lord, let this bitter cup pass from me. And what he was talking about was, was, was something that no one has ever experienced. That moment on the cross when he would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Are you willing to feel isolated and alone as if God himself has forsaken you? Are you able to drink from that cup? Don't talk to me about thrones. It's too much cheap Christianity in our churches. Yeah. Too much of that. And there's so many words I use a colloquialism. Jesus is saying, hey, look, fellas, I'm talking about grown folks' Christianity here. I ain't talking about me making you feel good and crying, you know, all the joy. No, there's a cup. There's a price to be paid. And by the way, the way he responded to them, in so many words, Jesus was saying, okay, guys, keep your mama out of this. That's what he said. In turning to them and asking them to pay the price, he didn't, get, he didn't ask his mother for permission for them to pay the price. He said, no, no, you handle your own business, son. Let me make a little ancillary point. Um, and I'm talking to younger folks here, 40 and younger, okay? Listen to me. Listen to me. If you don't want your parents in your business, stop inviting them to be in your business. Hey, whoever's mama this is, I should have her stand up. She said she don't want to be in your business no more. But uh, at any rate, if you don't want them in your... Listen, I'm serious about this. I'm serious about this. Uh, too many young people are conflicted. From 35 and down, they get conflicted. You, want to, you, you, you don't want your parents in your business, but every time you turn around, every time you get a little bit of a jam, every time you made a bad economic or financial decision, every time you do that, you're asking them to get in your business. I told Karen, say, look, 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 I'm telling you. I don't give our kids free advice, unsolicited advice, and even when they solicit it, I'm careful about the advice I give them. She said, well, why do you do that? Because I ain't paying their bills. I don't want nobody sleeping on my couch in the den. I don't want Doritos on the floor. I don't want Coke stains in the carpet. I don't want any of that stuff. I want them to stay out. Now, you laugh about that, but you keep getting in this little symbiotic and codependent nonsense. Oh, they need help. Well, you need help, too, for giving them all that help. And so he invites them, invites mama, stay out of the business. Don't ask your mother in your business, fellas. I need you to drink this cup. The third thing that we need to keep in mind here as we walk through this text is, is, is to keep in mind who grants the privilege. Granting the privilege. 
The opening line, actually verse 23 says, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So when they say, and I skipped over that little last line of the previous verse, when they said, yes, we are able, meaning that we are willing, we're committed, and Jesus said, that's right. And I'm going to prophesy something to you. You indeed will drink my cup. Listen to me. I want you to hear me closely on this, okay? Every follower of Jesus Christ has chalices of bitter-tasting, devastating things to drink. When Jesus said in Luke 14 that if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, the universal negative, you cannot be my disciple. Don't call yourself follower don't call yourself related to me. Because part of it, now yes, this is joy in the Christian life, part of it, core to, central to, identifying with Jesus is to experience his cross. Whatever that might mean. So when he said to them, yeah, yes, yes, you're going to drink it. And by the way, I think he was being specific there because, you know, um, James was killed for his faith by Herod Agrippa. That's over in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And history tells us that John uh, died a martyr's death near the end of the first century. So he's prophesying to them. He said, look, guys, you, your mama's standing here asking for you to be sitting next to me to the left and right. I got to tell you, you're, you're bypassing something, man. You, you, yes, you will drink of my cup. You will experience that, and I will be with you. But then he reminds them that granting positions to his right or to his left is not his prerogative. That's not Jesus' prerogative. He says, sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. Uh, there are chairs up there with the nameplates on them already. And I don't even know what they are. And I think the point being is, is would you stop being obsessed with stuff you have no control over? Let God give you what he's going to give you. Don't fight for it. Your preoccupation is following me and staying focused on me and focus on what needs to be done. He was telling them in so many words that suffering and struggle always precedes promotion. I wish that wasn't true, but it is. And so it is in your life and so it is in my life. Suffering and struggle always precedes promotion. And you, you're not going to get around that. None of us in here, nobody in this room is going to get around that. You're not going to get around it. That's part of the development. God is very serious about his glory. He's very serious about that. He's very serious about making permanent statements through us. He, he is very serious about us not being Christian in name, but being Christian in heart and in identity. 
And what that means is to embrace the hard things, to embrace the cross. No, not to ask for them, but when it comes, when it comes my way, it's part of me being branded by the gospel. That's part of it. You can drink my cup. The focus is always on paying the price. Now, the fourth thing we need to keep in mind is that in this narrative, Jesus wraps it all up, and I think this is where he's headed here, and he just sort of drops all of this on them. He says in so many words, hey, 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 don't serve where you're not, okay? You're not over there. Don't even serve where you want to be, because you ain't there either. He drops this on him. He says, serving in your place. Huh. Now, verse 24 is interesting here. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, don't, don't, don't make this more noble than it, I mean, it sounds like it's noble. It's like, you know, how dare you? We're following Jesus alone, and we would not dare think about it. No, no, they weren't indignant because these dudes went to Jesus with their mama. They were indignant because uh, they outmaneuvered them. That's, that's why they were upset. They were upset, seriously, seriously. It was like, oh, no, you didn't. And they're upset about this. And so they got outmaneuvered by, 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 by their colleagues. And there's, there's all, I don't want to get into all this. There's all kinds of evidence and when you look at their relationships that they re- really did not get this whole servanthood thing. Jesus repeatedly kept calling them back to that. They got this throne thing, and they were looking for that, but they were upset that they had gotten outmaneuvered. Well, Jesus, in verse 25, calls the disciples together, and listen to what he says. He says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, over them, over them. Jesus called the disciples together and reminded them that although some people lorded over others, the disciples were not to do so. Now, this is not how we function. This is not how we operate. We don't, we don't operate from position. Our position is not a statement of our value. Where you are in the pecking order says nothing about, nothing about your personal significance. We don't operate that way. My kingdom is different. My kingdom operates from a divine authority, not man-made power and manipulation and orchestration. We don't do that. That's not how we function. That's not how we roll. It is lowliness without self-assertion that is important in the kingdom. Did you hear that? 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 It is lowliness without self-assertion that is important in the kingdom. And unfortunately, humility is seen as a handicap and not a virtue. 
God honors the humble. God honors his servants. God honors people who are responsive to him. And let me say a word about humility. I've said this several times here. But listen, what we pass off as humility is not necessarily humility. Uh, the lack of, of self-esteem is not necessarily biblical humility. Uh, you, can, you can come off as being preferential to others, and when you look at it real closely, you know, you're just insecure. Insecurity is not biblical humility. The denial of your gifts and abilities is not biblical humility. Codependent behavior because you lack the courage to step forward, and so you use somebody else to represent you, that's not humility. Humility is strength, and I'm not playing on words. Listen to me closely. Humility is strength. Humility is the courage and focused determination to depend on God in all things. Humility is fearless. Humility says, I fear God more than I do you. There's no people pleasing in, in biblical humility. Humility is a life that depends on God. It is fearless dependence upon God. It is determined to, to, to depend on God. Humility doesn't cower. You wouldn't call Daniel a coward, would you? Yet he's a humble man. Moses is called one of the humblest men who ever lived, but you wouldn't hardly call Moses a coward. You wouldn't call the apostle Paul a coward. So let's, let's get rid of this idea that somehow humility cowers in the corner. No, humility, humility is a determination and it is a decision that in all things I am going to depend upon God and I'm going to run from my flesh and I'm going to run from self-assertion and I'm going to do what God tells me to do. That's humility. And that's what it means to be humble. You don't feel the need to brag. You don't feel the need to boast. You don't feel the need to leverage anything but the glory of God. Now, Jesus is not objecting to authority here in this passage. Understand me, he is objecting to the misuse of power. The misuse of power. Power and authority are two different things. It's like, I'll use this illustration because it's been in the news the last year. It's like a rogue police officer who beats someone up and hides behind his uni uniform. That's the misuse of power. But authority is what Jesus is talking about. We have power and authority so that we can glorify God and not have our way. That's the only reason why God gives anybody authority or power. And I would say this to you, anytime, anytime, anytime a believer manipulates or uses their position or power to have their way, they have just pulled the stopper out and authority will drain out of their lives. You lose authority when you exercise power. But when you operate from authority, you gain power. It's an amazing thing. And that's what Jesus was teaching them. No, 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 no. You don't operate from power. You, you see, humility empowers people, but power humiliates people. And when you operate from humility, you empower others. You strengthen others. But when you are in a position of leadership and you bully people, 
and you lead out of intimidation and fear, and you leverage your position, you're not, you're not concerned about empowering anybody but yourself, and you humiliate those that you lead. And I tell you, if anybody's in here that operates like that, you better stop it. You better stop that. God's going to make sure. If you feel like you got to bully somebody and always telling people off and threatening them with firing them and, and all that kind of Napoleonic nonsense. God will make sure that you pay. Now, if you name the name of Jesus Christ, I don't care if you're on a church staff or or you're you're out there in the business world, if you name the name of Jesus Christ, your modus operandi is to operate from humility and to see that others are functioning and doing better than, than you. Not every servant, verse 26, he reminds us, is a slave. But every slave is a servant. And that's the reason why he uses two different words here. Look at verse 26. It should not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Then verse 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Well, what's the difference? I think Christians ought to move from servanthood to slavery. Now, that, that's hard to come out of my mouth. Because you got to know, but that's not what he's talking about, that kind of slavery here. But uh, it's hard for me as an African-American, that, that motif troubles me because of our past. But every follower of Christ has to move from servanthood to slavery. Doulos means servant, and servants, you know, is, it's all voluntary. You're, you're hired. They're waitresses and domestics and butlers, and they're on the clock. They're paid, and they can go home, and they are free. They actually serve voluntarily. But, but we need to move from this whole idea of serving voluntarily to serve out of a grace compulsion. Did you hear what I just said? We, we are enslaved by grace. We have to do it. Because we are owned by another. Doulos is the term here. Someone who is owned by another. That's what we do. When we serve as slaves of Christ, we live as if his will is ours. And that's what he was saying. Hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. Get your mama out of this. I didn't call you mama. I called you. Okay? Get, get these ancillary folks out of your ears and out of your head. And don't, don't be bringing your parents to me no more. All right? I, I, I call you to follow me. And you got to know that if you follow me, you're tied to my heart. You do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. You understand me? And too many Christians have not settled that issue in their hearts and minds. You do what God tells you to do no matter what. No matter what. Why? Because we have moved from servanthood to delightful slavery. We're owned by someone else. And by the way, Jesus himself, obviously, is our model for this. The last line is the motivation for all of this. I love the way Jesus brings it to the point. He says in verse 28, he says, okay, here's the example He says, even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom (laughs) for many. 
And this is deep stuff here because he's saying to his James and John and the rest of them, listen, 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 listen. Your servanthood, your delightful grace, slavery, really is a portrait of the gospel. It is a portrait of the cross. Just as I gave my life as a ransom for many, you give and you serve to set others free. That's what you're about. That's what you're about. And you go through whatever it takes to do that. Whatever it takes. You see, the heart of a servant, we, we pay the price so that others can experience the joy and pleasure of God's blessing. That's what it means. That's what it means to walk with God. That's what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. That's what it means to serve. That's what it means to serve. That's what it means to serve. Serving is not about my fulfillment. Serving is not about my personal joy. Serving means that I'm lost in Jesus. And if I can use my life in any way to remove the impediments in your life, to lift burdens from you so that you can experience the full joy and the blessing of God, then that's why we exist. My life has to tell the truth about the gospel and how I minister has to tell the truth about the gospel. It is not my agenda. It is not what I want for Fellowship Bible Church. It is not my vision that's important. You are the vision. What's in your way is my mission to move out of your way. And so it is as we relate to one another. It's time that we get to that level of gospel service and stop trying and walking around the church about, I, I, I got to find a place to fit. Usually when people say that, they're saying, look, I've got gifts and talents and abilities that I want to showcase. That's important, but what we ought to be asking is this. What needs can I meet? Who can I bless? What burdens can I lift? Who can I make better? That's servanthood. And yet that's expensive. It's costly. Everybody wants to be a servant as the online goes until you're treated like one. But even Jesus could not reach the throne except by way of the cross. What makes you think and what makes me think it's going to be any better? So let me land the plane by making these suggestions. Click them off. One, I think by way of implication and application, we need to accept and view ourselves as servants. Stop identifying ourselves with our gifts and personality profile. That's important, but that's a secondary consideration. Don't identify yourself that way. If you identify yourself that way, you'll limit yourself to what you just said. Don't identify yourself based upon your your, your personality profile. Don't identify yourself based upon your gifts. Identify yourself as servants. I think we need to think of ourselves that way. Number two, look for opportunities to serve. Look for them. They're there. Thirdly, shift the focus from who you are and what you have to what needs to be done. I suppose that's a redundancy. I just said that. But, but shift the focus away from who you are, away from what you have, to what needs to be done. And I would say, fourthly, ask constantly, 
how can I bless and encourage those I come in contact with? How can I do that? How can I think less of Crawford and less of my takeaways and more of how can I bless those that I come in contact with? I think number five, I would say, finally, uh, stay focused on God and others. Now, I I need to say this here. I I know, I know uh, that famous old line uh, that some of us heard many, many years ago, Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. That has been sort of, you know, our Christian psychologists and uh, counselors have sort of taken us to the woodshed for using that a little bit because, you know, they kind of like wanted us to overcorrect that. And they're reminded to us, and it's a good one, is this. Well, you can't really take care of others until you've taken care of yourself. I get it, I get it, I get it. But to a point, I think we need to correct the overcorrection. <laughs> It's been my experience. Our problem is is that not that we don't think of ourselves less. We think about ourselves too much. I'm just kind of giving you my gut over, you know, I'm 65, Jack, and I don't don't talk to a whole lot of people that are that passionately others-oriented, I hate to say. I think we think about ourselves too much. Too much. That's a word from Jesus to us, okay? God wants us to serve, church. And let me tell you, I know this from experience. You say, well, Crawford, if I just make myself available like that, what about my spiritual gifts? Will they be used? I'm going to tell you something from experience. (laughs) God will use your gifts more than you ever realize and more than you ever bargained for. And he will use the equity in your life because you're focused on the cross and the right thing. Oh, yeah, he will. Don't you ever worry about what you're going to lose when you give up for others. God will give it back to you and give it back to you in spades. I'm a living witness right here. God has meticulously taken care of this old boy. And he'll do it for you. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask those who are in this service, who are Stephen ministers and staff members and elders, we will be up front to pray with you. If you're here, if you've got spiritual need, don't, don't, don't just rush out and quietly, you know, turn into yourself. Let us pray with you, come alongside of you and to seek the Lord together on, on your behalf. Uh, we, we want to do that. Now, I'm going to make a beeline to Guest Central to greet those who are here uh, or visiting. But if you've got any need whatsoever, let's, let's pray for one another. That's what we do. That's what we do. And we need to go to the throne together. Father, thank you so much for the joy and privilege of serving you. And thank you, O oh God, for uh, the sweetness of your word and the fellowship of one another. And Lord... We ask of you that when it's our turn to drink that bitter cup, give us grace, Lord, but help us not to spit it out. Lord Jesus, we thank you, and I just look around this place, and I think of the people who have served me and Karen, 
gone out of their way to do just sweet, special things. May we do that for one another because, Jesus, you've done it for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.